Okay, can you hear me? Uh, my name is Tom Wallace. I'm an editor at W.W. Norton here in New York. And on behalf of Penn, I would like to welcome you all to our 12th New Writers evening. We have two a year. Uh, they go back to 1979. Uh, obviously, these are evenings in which we hear works from new writers. Uh, they have an opportunity to get our reactions, and if their publisher's lurking in the room, they sometimes follow through and actually offer contracts for works. Uh, Pam Pierce tells me that out of this program, at least seven writers have been published, and there are two now who are under contract as direct consequences of these evenings. I don't think that's the primary purpose, but it is, seems like a pleasant fringe benefit, if nothing else. I think it's that we're here to listen to good young writers, to enjoy them, uh, and I guess to comment to them privately on their work. Uh, the evening will have the following form. There will be two novelists reading, a poet and a dramatist. Uh, I will be introducing Glenn Vincent, the dramatist. I'm pinch-hitting for Patty Bosworth, who was meant to be here tonight, unfortunately cannot because of an illness in the family. So uh, I will introduce Mr. Glenn. Uh, then Wesley Brown, novelist, playwright, uh, will be introducing Kathleen uh, Collins, uh, Howard Moss, the poetry editor of The New Yorker, will be introducing a poet, Eamon Grennan, and the novelist, Lynn Sharon Schwartz, uh, will be introducing Marjorie Sander. Uh, Mr. Vincent is going to read from a play called Mainstream. Uh, he is the, was the winner of the Robert Anderson Playwriting Prize when he was at Harvard for one-act play called Alex, which was done at the Loeb Drama Center. He has worked with the American Rep Repertory Theater in Boston, the Magic Theater in San Francisco, and has had uh, workshop productions of one-act plays at the Circle Rep Theater. So I turn you over to uh, Mr. Glenn Vincent and his colleagues. Hello. I want to thank Penn for inviting me here in the first place. Uh, we will be reading the first scene of the play and one monologue from the second scene. The play takes place in New York City, and it's about the um, involuntary suicide of a young woman whose name is Joe. Uh, there will be three people reading tonight. Uh, Joe is played by Sarah Walker. Can't see her. She's sitting in the middle. Uh, Rod Cates will be playing Ted, her landlord. And Kathy Arden will be playing Sandy, Joe's roommate. Uh, Kathy Arden, by the way, has just published a book, which you can purchase in this very store, if you'd like. <laughs> and without further ado, we will start reading. The scene. Friday evening. Can everybody hear this? Yeah? Okay. Friday evening, Sandy and Joe's living room and kitchen. Everything is a mess. Only one lamp is lit. Joe, a very attractive woman in her early 20s, sits in a chair in a long, shallow closet upstage. 
She is crushing an aluminum, aluminum can while talking on the phone. That was... Peter, listen to me. That was not a lifetime guarantee. Peter. Peter. The fact that I once said that I would marry you if you asked me to was conditional on the time it was going to take you to ask me. Three years ago. It's... Listen to me. Three years is a long time. I'm not interested anymore. I don't care. I'm hanging up. I'm going to hang up the phone now. Yes. Yes, you were a good lover. Very good. Not the best. <laughs> yes. Listen, I've got to go. I'm hanging up, you hear? You will hear a click and then the tone will sound again. I'm, I'm going out for a walk alone. Maybe we'll run into each other, maybe not. Goodbye. Goodbye! She hangs up and lights another cigarette, then puts it out. She looks at herself in the mirror. The phone rings three times. She doesn't answer. She picks up a book, reads the first line, and throws it across the room. Loud knocking at the door. Yo! Joe! I'm not here. Is this a bad time? I don't want to see anyone. Teddy sticks, his, uh, Teddy sticks his hand in and unlocks the chain. He enters with a pair of skis. I got a fortune cookie at dinner, said my luck was going to change. Sorry to hear it. And what happens as soon as I step out on the sidewalk? Somebody hands you a quarter. It's hailing out. There are dozens of well-educated people out there who are willing to sell their bodies for a cab. I get one, okay? It pulls right up in front of me. That's no miracle, Teddy. It's a fluke. <laughs> the cabbie's name is Theodore, right? He also happens to be Greek. Not only that, the guy got a brand new pair of skis tied to the roof of the cab. Some guy forgot it at JFK Airport. We talk Greek, you know, where are you from? Papa da, Papa do. How long you been here? Papa da, Papa do. I got them for $80. They're yours. I don't need skis. Sandy told me you sold your last pair on the street. $45. You're what, 20? 21. Whatever, young, pretty, athletic, unemployed. And you're not permanently attached to anyone. You need skis. I can always take up ice skating. Okay, fine. You want to spend your weekend in the bathtub watching soap operas? Sorry, Ted. Huh? I can't make it to Vermont. Oh, you're busy? I just can't make it. That really fucks things up. I'm sorry. I'm talking about a condominium. I mean, white shag carpeting, pine paneling, a real fire burning in the fireplace. I'm talking dunking mushrooms in the old rum toddy. Take a fast one up the nose, milk it with hash, and watch the fucking snow grow in front of your eyes. Well, maybe Sandy will go. No, not without you. She'd need a written permission from her parents. This is not my problem, Ted. You said I you... never. I wrote it down in my diary. Not definitely. I never used that word. Bullshit. You walk in here. I rented this place for $500. You barge in here without knocking. You think this door is your door just because you rent it. Like I'm some kind of fringe benefit to the lease. Insult me. I have a right to my privacy. You have an attitude problem. I'm very upset. Would you mind going now? Yes, I would mind very much. Okay, never mind. I'm very disappointed. I'm very, very disappointed. I went to a lot of trouble for nothing. You know, I could make things very difficult for you, but I won't, because I realize that you are hysterical, stressed out, young. The night is still young. Here. 
bought this gram for you. He pulls an envelope out from his pocket and slams it down on the coffee table. Ecstasy. Little hash. Teddy. Don't I... say anything. I've been humiliated enough. I'm sorry. I rented this place to you for one reason. You were friendly. Everybody in this building is friendly. That's how I run my business. On a personal basis. I'm not like the rest of them in the city. You know, give me the money, see you later. It's not the way I am. You want to be by yourself, fine. You deserve to be lonely. All night you got to think about who you are, what you are, and what you won't be. You know, I don't have to come down here to tell you this. I mean, I don't have to come down here. I'm sorry. He exits, slamming the door. Oh, shit. He goes to the kitchen area, looks at the dishes, then opens the fridge and takes out a beer and a box of donuts before wandering into the living room area. She picks up the envelope that Teddy left. She goes through the contents and totally absorbed and becomes totally absorbed. Sandy enters. She steps into the room and watches Joe counting her pills. Joe? Joe? Hi, Sandy. What's wrong? Nothing. Okay. I just apologized to Ted for hating his guts because he gave me some drugs. You were just being polite. Nothing's free with Ted. There's always a thread leading to the attack vessel in his pocket. Well, there's no point in dreading what you know is going to happen anyway, right? Makes me ill. But then I know underneath all the garbage there's a person, and, and I apologize to that person, hoping it will emerge. You finish with the peanut butter, vodka, ice cream, donuts, cocaine, the girl who has everything. I'm going to clean it up. I need the exercise. I'm very upset. That's what I figured. Everything is going wrong, you know what I mean? I didn't get the part. What happened to the Merrill Lynch plan? I was up for a part as an extra in a movie. I think I wore too much makeup. Sandy picks up a pair of men's underwear. But these yours? My timing is off. If I take the volume too early, I don't react. If too late, I freeze. I thought you were trying to get a job with a brokerage firm this week. The casting director said hello to me, and I started shaking. They kept telling me to stand still so they could focus the camera. I didn't know what they were saying. I was still thinking about the volume when it was finally going to work. The third time, I get the plot. It's a movie about American schoolgirls, archaeologists, who go to France for a dig, only instead of having a good time and gaining weight, they get killed one by one by a Neanderthal man who is really a famous French lush who lives in a nearby chateau. I've heard of it. At first, I couldn't. What? They want me to scream. Oh. It's not easy. I sound like I'm having an orgasm. I, mean, I look at the director like, help me. He gives me this look. I see it. The Neanderthal man is in front of me. I start to scream. I can't stop. I'm on the floor screaming, screaming, screaming. Next thing I know, I'm in this dark hallway with Dennis, this gay guy who I met who told me about the movie. When did you meet him? He told me about the casting call. That's all? In a bar someplace. Oh. He's got his arm around me, and he hands me this card with a therapist's name on it. On it. He, he takes me to the elevators and, and tells me to take care of myself. I go to a coffee shop. I sit down. It's across the street from the hotel I stayed in when I first got to New York. I'm upset. I call Peter. Uh-oh. Go on. Well, Peter's talking in my ear. He, he thinks my story is a ploy I've invented to get us back together. I'm looking in the same hotel lobby I walked in every night for three months and 12 days. Old plastic flower bed in the window. 
the clerk is reading the New York Post. I can actually recognize the girl's asses as they walk in. They go to my room to freebase. No longer. Peter's being an idiot. I hang up. I cross the street. The desk clerk looks up and says, hi, Joe. I wink, and I get into the elevator. Ring 3C for a freebie is still scratched into the wall. I get off on the fourth floor and walk all the way down the hall. The door is open, and Rita's there with a copy of People. She says, hi, babe. You forgot your key or something? So how have you been lately? Blackout. Scene three. <coughs> Sandy and Joe's living room a few minutes after scene one. Sandy is sitting, drinking a beer. Joe is in the closet with the door shut. Cute guy, really cute, well-built, 24. He already makes 48000 a year, plus a bonus commission. I was impressed. I mean, I was kind of. Yale graduate, varsity everything, blah, blah, smooth voice, very together on the surface. Took me to his place. Nice place, 30-something floor. Spaceship view of the river. Like all that stuff down there doesn't really exist. Anyway, he had all the required equipment, laser stereo, word processor, Nautilus, good skis, excellent skis, video camera. He wanted to film me right off, like coming in the door, taking off my coat, sitting down. I let him. Why not? Then he suggested that I take off my dress, like it was a joke. Of course, very predictable, no imagination, really. I asked him for another glass of champagne. He gets it. I hold his hand, and I tell him to take off his pants. Naturally, he freezes. Get in front of the camera, I tell him. He kind of holds back, but I give him a feel or two, and he moves. Very <laughs> obedient, really. He's got his pants around his ankles and a hard-on when I leave. The camera is rolling. He was very pissed. <laughs> I had a good walk after that. I walked all the way home. The phone was ringing when I opened the door. You were in a four-valium coma. It's him, of course. He invites me to the Caribbean for the weekend. He's very cute. No imagination, really, but he's funny once every three or four hours. I said yes. I'm going to the Caribbean, Joe. Joe... Look, just grunt or something if you're still alive. I've got to know whether or not to call the ambulance. Joe! I'm here. Thank you. So I said I'd see him tonight. Then, if things work out, we go for a weekend in the sun. She goes to the fridge and gets out some Perrier and a yogurt, then sits back down. We arrive as the sun is setting behind our bungalow by the sea. We have just enough time for a quick skinny dip. The beach is empty. The last middle-aged couple drag their bodies back to the side of the pool where a calypso band is playing strangers in the night. We take a hot shower, and I give him the first blowjob of our relationship. At dinner, we're not sure exactly what is happening, except that we are both very impressed with our bodies and the exceptional island food. 
The weekend passes quickly. Tennis, sightseeing, water skiing, casino, disco. By the end of 24 hours, we've tried out everything Western civilization has to offer. We're on very intimate terms as we pack up our bags to go. Don't forget the underwear in between the sheets. Exactly. We land in New York Sunday night, cold, quiet cab ride. I hold his hand. I tell him I had a wonderful time. Hope to see him later in the week. Go on. All week, he's contemplating the fantastic sex he's had with me and my age. He can't reconcile these two things. It's a problem, but on Friday around noon, he finally calls me. She takes out her diaphragm from her bag and looks at it in the light. She pours Perrier into the diaphragm to see if it is leaking. <laughs> Time passes. We'll do anything to entertain ourselves and avoid talking. It's a critical period to commit or not to. We do it. She pours the water out of her diaphragm and back into the glass. We're <laughs> We're happy, we're sexy, we're successful, we get married, kids, houses around the world, we spend huge amounts of money and are known everywhere for our extravagance parties. We're so witty that people record our conversations and replay them at their own parties. <laughs> the babies become kids. Bob has become president of his company. I am now spending most of my time writing the story of my unbelievably successful life, but there is friction. Bob is still unbelievably dull and unimaginative while I am witty, gay, and fun. He has affairs with wind-up toys from the office. I'm fucking a very famous actor. Divorce. Well, how old are you? What? How long does the marriage last? Nine years. I'm exactly 39. W what about the kids? It's tragic, it's sad, but they get over it. Uh, what are their names? I don't know. How many are there? So I leave Bob for the actor, who's mm -hmm. also a political activist, who is busy trying to ward off the outbreak of World War III. Mm -hmm. We have an outrageous affair, maybe an additional unplanned kid. Another one? Can the kid. My book is turned into a movie. I'm chosen to be the star. I win an Academy Award for my performance. Poor Roger, the actor, who is also slightly alcoholic, is stunned and dies shortly afterward in a tragic auto accident. Mm -hmm. The Third World War breaks out, and my career is buried by all the war commotion. Bob has been calling me desperately ever since my Academy Award performance, which was naturally about our marriage. Everything makes sense now. He's going to change. I fly off to Switzerland to meet him and the kids. Fighting has broken out at the airport. My bodyguards rush me out to the waiting Rolls Royce, but not before I am shot twice in the breast and the arm. On the way up the long drive to Bob's mountain chalet, I have flashbacks of Bob's and my first weekend in the Caribbean. I remember the very first night in his apartment with the video camera. He is standing at the front door with graying hair, a beard, and a gun. The children are crying as I struggle up the path. Just a few feet away, I collapse. The dog barks, and I die. The war is called to a temporary halt in honor of my funeral. Sandy is standing by the window by the end of the speech, quite enthralled by her own story. Joe enters from the closet, covered in a black cloak, and making the sound of tolling bells and blowing wind, she walks across to the bathroom, hanging onto the wall. Do you think ABC will buy it? Scene.
My introduction to Kathy Collins came first through her work as a filmmaker. And what I find striking about her fiction as well as her work in film is her extraordinary grasp of the rituals that keep us insulated from a knowledge of ourselves and each other. The, complex, the complexities of our national identity are often avoided, avoided by even those considered our best writers. What impresses me about Kathy is her insistence on the intimacy between class, gender, and race in any understanding of who we are as a nation. She recognizes the differences, that differences are confounding and often lead us into collective vows of silence regarding certain aspects of our national life. But Kathy Collins's fiction is unintimidated by the dangers inherent in crossing borders where self-anointed immigration officials would deny us entry into unsettling realities and inconvenient truths. The audacity of her comedy of manners is achieved through an aerobic prose style, a blazing intelligence, an eloquent venom, and a raucous humor. I am honored to be able to invite you into Kathy Collins's fictional salad bar, and I guarantee you that there's more than enough for everyone. Kathy Collins. That is a terribly demanding act to follow, but I'll do my best. Can I be heard? Am I quite loud enough for everyone? All right. This is called a writer's tale. It's called a tale because it meanders. And because it meanders, I would not be so daring as to drop into it in the middle. So I start at the beginning. Part one, Andrew. I met Lolly on a clear day when you could see forever. R brought her to the house. She was his chosen demo queen, the best he bragged. She could make a good song, suck pussy and a bad one, piss gold, he boasted with extravagant noises, a lot of finger popping and strutting around the room. Behavior, by the way, which he only exhibited around us. If you met R in the street, you'd swear he was the last of a long line of bourgeois Negroes, a tight-fisted little brown man out to prove himself on the world. He even dressed the part. Spiffy bow tie, clipped Natalie in place, Oxford shoes polished to a highfalutin shine, hair slicked down via the old stocking cap technique, double-breasted suits worn stylishly baggy and loose, and of course glasses. Thick frame, myopic lenses that only the nearsighted can't live without. They take me for a scholar, he would boast, speaking of the world in general, his public, a ghostly army of folk he felt he should impress for no precise reason other than that it was a colored thing to do. Impress folk, whoever, wherever, whatever they may be. This unwritten code of black living he obeyed like a soldier trained to salute. Lolly shook everybody's hand, a formal gesture that was one of her signatures. She reached out, held your hand firmly. Just long enough to communicate that she lived on unflinching ground, then she smiled, let her eyes light up the rest of her face, and waited for someone to make the next move. Which Marcia did, or Emma, or Janice, I can't recall. I just remember that she was swooped away in a minute, let out of my sight faster than I could bear, that I hung back on the steps indecisively. It was not my policy to mingle open-handedly in the racket and noise of family goings-on. 
I stuck pretty much to my study until around dinner time when the call of gossip and intrigue got the better of me. Just as I was climbing the steps, she came back for her pocketbook. I need a cigarette, she said out loud, though not especially to me. Music makes me want to smoke. Then she smiled and walked sloppily out of my sight with an awkward gait that I recognized as one of her signatures, a zigzagging through space as if she was avoiding bumping into things, felt things that crowded the air and kept her from walking a straight line. It was then that I knew she could sing, not because of Vara's boastful prelude, not because I knew shit about music, but because of the way she walked, treading a thin line that said life can get out of hand, go haywire and blow up in your face. I could read in that precarious zigzagging across space the uneasy notes that would make her voice something distinct. It was just a feeling, a writer backing an artistic hunch. I went upstairs and shut the door. Few sounds reach as far as my tower in the sky where I alone preside over one eccentric room. Books lie about in stacked piles. A gray metal desk sits in the middle looking broad and ugly. Cardboard boxes abound. It's a dumb room. I apologize for describing it. But that room was a source of much family contention. Janice especially mocked it for its lack of atmosphere. She wanted it lined with wall-to-wall bookcases, mahogany furniture, oriental rugs, all of which would add a musty odor of authorship to the place. The room angered her, much as I have always angered her with my flabby stance. Oh, God, she's likely to explain. Don't get me started on his muddled way of doing things. It makes my blood boil and spurt. For instance, take his homebody thing. He thinks that staying put is wisdom. It's one of his serious notions that one gets to the same place by not moving at all. Oh, God, it makes me want to send a swift one flying up his ass. I mean, it looks good on paper, all this driveling he does about home and hearth as a true way of being. His whole artistic stance is built on characters who never evolve, a host of schmozzle-like types who never get anywhere in life. In his menagerie, there are failed writers, failed blacks, failed husbands, failed lovers, failed TV producers, failure reeks out of every page. And he turns these specimens into heroes, as if failure were a kind of hip Sony Walkman that the loser takes out while he strolls aimlessly along, making fun of those who play faster, coarser games with life. At least they play, she'd scream and shake her head furiously. The wimp, how can I stand up to life and admit I married a wimp? And she'd collapse in a fit of laughter, struck down by my inertia, hovering and laying claim over her energy. By the time I came down, Lolly was gone to rave reviews, to all of them ooing and aahing in her behalf. You should have heard her, Janice said, poking me in the arm. You should have come down for once from that dumb tower of yours. It's not often that a voice like that comes knocking at our door. And where were you but hiding up there, dissecting words? She's the best, Andrew R. threw in for good measure. She makes my song shine, and he speared another lamb chop, greedy and high on his tunes. Don't you love the sound of her name, Emma mused. It rolls around the tongue like music. There should be shrines built to such a voice. Saint Lolly of the Golden Tones. Papa, why are there no saintly distinctions for those who feed life with beauty? Are they not also the Saint Teresas of the world? When Lolly sings, I feel reverent. My heart cries aloud. Don't laugh at your dear rational M. I mean what I say. I swear to you that when Lolly was singing, a biblical understanding gripped me right here in the center of my chest. I felt the world as a deep abiding place in myself as someone alive forever. Stop laughing, all of you. Stop that indecent guffawing at my expense. And don't make any of your boastful comments are about how black people carry around life's soul while white people feed off the crumbs. This is no ordinary white family you've dropped in on, and you've already stayed long enough to cut out the racial con games. Lolly can sing. 
Whether or not her skin is a true part of the equation, she's got a voice that grips the soul, a voice that makes me chilly and confused. I can feel it in my chest like the colors of the rainbow. And she laughed with a husky defiance that surprised all of us. I don't like to hear you talk like that, Marcia said slowly, and there was anger in her voice. You never talk like that. You talk about law and order and justice and poor people. You never talk about God or rainbows. That woman hypnotized you, took away your concrete mind. Only mama can talk that way and be full of truth, Lolly. I never heard of anybody called Lolly. It's a suspicious sounding name. It scares me. I won't be fooled by anyone called Lolly. And she looked around at all of us as if she didn't recognize us anymore. What's happened to us? The spell is broken. What we had is gone, gone, gone. And she began to cry. Janice got up quickly to comfort her, folding her in her arms while we looked on, bewildered. Marcia saw the whole thing the moment Lolly stepped through the door. Saw it the way a child confronts danger and begs God to make it disappear. Saw it the way Janice would have seen it if she'd spread out her cards, done a Celtic cross on me. She would have seen the tower cross my king of swords, the world reversed, the ten of cups reversed, betrayal and disruption screaming out at us while one earthbound spirit who could only be me retrenched deeper and deeper inside himself. Andrew lets Janice speak. What is this, my chance to harangue? The despised, rejected woman gets to have her say, you are too generous with the kind and overbearing manners of a schmuck. You remember everything. No detail escapes that prurient mind of yours. It's just like you to give me my say in this seemingly open gesture like the good boy that you are. You hold out your hands for the slap on the wrists. All right, let's say, uh, let's say I agree to play by the rules and make it a good story. After all, you've stolen many a tale from me straight from the horse's mouth. Most of, most of which, of course, I'd sworn never to reveal a psychiatrist's brain being a true storehouse of tales. But you had an uncanny way of wangling scraps and pieces, just enough to rebuild your always sinking dam of tales. I used to warn our friends, our enemies, whoever stopped at our table for an hour's affectionate stroking, watch out for Andrew, he's all ears and antenna, don't let slip hint any, any, don't let slip any hint of true private times. He'll turn you into a story some unexpected tale that mirrors all your flaws. I gave this warning indiscriminately to the thin and helpless, the sleek and well-fed, even to those disarming little waifs who straggled in behind the children. No stray soul was exempt from your literary designs, and ours was, as you surely remember, a house full of strays. The merest hint of distress, and we opened our doors wide, played mother and father superior to the poorly assembled. I only wish to speak of one such creature. R arrived just as the seams in our little, well-knit little drama were about to come undone. Up until then, I have to admit, we were having a pretty good time. Kept up a lively chorus that had all the markings of a good jazz combo. You played the inveterate straight man, a perfect foil for our foolishness, our comic bits. And I, I do feel the need to describe myself here after all this piece is not a solo sung for you alone. I'm in it up to my ears, and this is how I see myself. A trim little piece with a slightly edgy voice and a loud laugh, my outstanding trait. It was forever embarrassing you with its raucous overtones. Too sexual, especially for a woman who did not give it up easily and who would have preferred not to have to give it up at all. 
The juicy needs of sex, all that slipping and sliding, rolling and fencing, fell on a deaf body and sent you tripping over your own stiff needs until they fell into a kind of literary stupor where food, wine, a crowded dialogue with children and other interesting strays dulled your true desire to get some. Not that you didn't eventually do just that. That is, after all, what we're coming to. The whole point of this leaden tale is all about your finally getting some and ripping apart the seams of that easy rhythm we were dancing to. Um, I dropped a page in there, if you don't mind bringing it to me. <laughs> Just if you bring my bag. I time this to 15 minutes if you will allow me the, <laughs> if you will allow me the suspension. Thank you. and ripping apart the seams of that easy rhythm we were dancing to. One day I said to you, you're about to get some. I see you in full sexual splendor, riding some female body like a stallion in heat, and a vision of you romping and frolicking in bed danced before my eyes. You shrugged, grinned at, me, grinned at me with slight indulgence, as if the whole thing was really no concern of yours. I tell you your future, and that's your reaction. You don't deserve to have a thing happen in your life. And what about me, I wondered, where will I be while you're screwing around? I looked again, turned on the camera in search of some picture that would show me myself. Nothing. A fog. Oh, God, I've got no future. I'll be left all alone, discarded and blurred. Just then, R arrived, and the melody moved forward. He'd been to an audition and was disgruntled and sad. I played, sang, waited. Nobody came up to me, so I decided to leave. I wish I could get R's way of speaking right. He didn't talk like I've just quoted him, not in those crisp little phrases. Here I could use a little of your literary assistance, your writer's penchant for faking the truth. R talked like a musical grammarian, as if before there were words, there were semicolons and commas, a whole army of punctuation that was more important than the words. He was always looking for pauses, a brief hiatus where words hung suspended in his mental air. What you watched in order to get at R was his face, how he looked away from you, the long, elongated stare, plaintive with dismay. R was surprised that he could talk at all. He was so fragmented that it never occurred to him that speaking was a two-way street, call and response. For him, it was only a call, disjointed, sad, locked away from human connection. In terms of his talent, you used to call him a Luftmensch, a multi-talented failure, luckless in life. And you're right that his fatal disconnection dictated his fate. What's wrong with that description is that R was no meek schmozzle-like type. He was altogether arrogant, cocky in his despair. Moreover, he was not Jewish. We have neglected in all of this to speak of his Negro origins. He was a black man, technically speaking, a medium shade of brown. Cultural information of a more specific nature, whether he grew up on the block or in some elite bourgeois suburb is hard to come by. Where he'd been, what he'd been doing, up until the day he knocked on our door remains one of those mysteries time has refused to help solve. He referred to no one, no hardworking mother, no devoted aunt, no derelict father. When questioned acutely, as Emma was wont to do, he'd retreat into one chosen line, I'm without hindrance, and shut his mouth. 
What's ridiculous, Emma would counter. That's ridiculous, Emma would counter. No one alive is unobstructed. The past is a shackle always pulling one down. She was in her psychological phase, toying on and off with the idea of following in her mother's magical footsteps. Even I have difficulties with our seeming amnesia. From a psychiatric perspective, it's an untenable condition, not to mention the literary dead end it creates. What's a character without a past? Even you were convinced that in those months and months of unorthodox analysis between R and myself, I unearthed a gold mine of family secrets which I kept to myself. Often at the dinner table, you'd put out your customary feelers about how the day went, what patients I'd seen, even inquire politely. You kept right on sniffing, just as if you could smell R directly under my skin. I even tried one time to fool you, made up a whole history for R on the spot. He grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in the Clinton Street Projects, a rough neighborhood, knee-deep in poverty and dope. Then he went on to some school of music and art where his talents were refined, his sensibility appreciated, and he left Newark behind, biting the proverbial dust. There was much disruption in his family. Murder, suicide, both are events that he witnessed before the age of nine. There's even a sister. The connection is incestuous, though I haven't pinned that down yet. It's just an intuitive guess. Then I sat back on my laurels and waited. You took a few puffs on your pipe, gave me that long-haired, jaundiced look that spelled trouble. You think some half-baked tale like that can slip by me? That's the kind of shit colored people repeat all the time. They know full well whites want a rags-to-riches saga or some rags-to-rags bullshit full of incest and dope. Stop this coy shit and hand over the fucking story. You know damn well I'd like the true juicy tale. Boy, did that make me giddy. I had you eating out of my hands for a few measly words. Look at your father, children, I shouted. The dopest would kill for a brand new tale. I was all but collapsed in a fit of weeping laughter. All right already. Since this is the final resting place in your memory, since this is my final resting place in your memory, it's not fair to withhold all the goodies from you. And I agree. The tete-a-tetes between R and myself are full of juicy tidbits that would make a ripe addition to your storehouse of tales. So I'll give you a sample hour between R and myself, which she proceeds to do, and it's a long section about what happens between she and R when they actually have these psychiatric sessions. Pretty funny, actually. Then we'd come home for dinner, walk through the door, all giggles and amusement. I brought R home for dinner, I announced, and the children would come squealing forward. Marcia would coax him straight to the piano, and while he played, begin a rakish dance of melting delight. Emma would drift in, playing her recorder with Roberto Swift on her heels, banging away on his newest percussive device, drums, cymbals, congas, tom-toms. Since the dawn of his childhood, Roberto grooved on tapping out his thoughts. Even you had no strenuous objection to R's hovering presence. His enigmatic posture was almost a story in itself. Ah, I confess a longing for those simple-minded days when life seemed an endless Micaiah. R played and sang, Marcia danced, Roberto tapped and hummed along. Emma sat lotus-like, drawing in the vibes. You sat on the couch, smoking your pipe, while I applauded from beginning to end. There is no appropriate moment to show appreciation. Then R would drift into some clairvoyant melody. Sometimes when it's sunny, you can watch heat rise, cast a perfect shadow over our demise. Colors of a rainbow in a gloomy sky keep the day from falling into sad disguise. Winter chill remembered on a hot spring day causes one to shiver, tremble with dismay. Who can call us strangers who saw our joy? Only non-believers speak of broken toys. Sweet, sweet are. 
strange that he should be the one to bring Lolly into our house. Perhaps that was the nature of his clairvoyant pain. The Pied Piper called the tune, and in she walked. going to tell you all the facts I know about Eamon Grennan, but I see that they're all printed here, which was essentially my speech. I became aware of his poems because he submitted them to the New Yorker, and uh, they are poems which have a mastery of structure and which still hold on to an extraordinary lyrical uh, bent, which is... Um, a rare combination these days. I think they're poems that are very strong, they're original. I think he's one of the best poets writing on either side of the Atlantic. As a matter of fact, he writes on both. Mr. Glennon, I'm very happy to introduce him. To uh, well, how about get this up first? Can I be heard? Back there. Okay. Okay. I'm going to read uh, three <coughs> slim little poems, and then four rather chunky poems. First are uh, from an earlier state of mind, and the others are from more or less the present. Among them are some of those uh, Howard, in his uh, nice editorial, talked about. Uh, first is a, a poem called, with a title quite as long as any of the lines, On a Three and a Half Ounce Lesser Yellow Legs Departed Boston, August 28, Shot Martinique, September 3. Uh, I was reading a book of uh, bird migration and saw this particular account and it struck me, and always it has stood at the kind of beginning of the time when I was uh, starting to write poems, so I have a sentimental attachment to this and to the uh, unfortunate uh, lesser yellow legs, little bird. Little brother, would I could make it so far, the whole globe curling to the quick of your wing. You leave our minds lagging with no word for this gallant fly-by-night blind flight, but ah, the shot, you clot in a cloud of feathers, drop dead in a nest of textbooks. Now seasons migrate without you, flying south. At the gunman's door, the sea grapes plump and darken. When I came here and, and read uh, American poet, poetry, um, a poet who meant a lot to me was James Wright, and I'd like to uh, read a poem I wrote after James Wright died. Uh, those of you who know his work will recognize that the uh, better lines in the poem are his. It's in three sections. It's called James Wright, 1927-1980. One. 
It is the supple conjunction of two chestnut horses in a green field and wringing them like a dish of spilt primordial light, a spread of mustard weed and poppies. It is an August afternoon in which they nuzzle one another, swanning their sleek necks down to kiss this homely native ground. It is a steamy day, and I see their undulant lovely forms like figures on a frieze, their movements concentrated, patient, grave. Dusk will widen her starry eyes to their sober appreciation, or new light travel their flanks like a warm hand, heavy with whispering. Two. Your book crosses water with me. Out of its fresh leaves peer your earthly deer and your horses. Quail where away in transient panic. The little blue heron is still as a gravestone bird, and the fox paces his acres of milkweed and sleeping miners. See where the sky blooms after rain. Incredible feathered things climb and twist about the air, alive to its every veer and ripple. Three. There's an old Irish poem about death. A house where rain won't fall. A fearless place, open as a garden, without a wall around it. And the secret of this journey, you said, meaning life, meaning death, is to let the wind blow its dust all over your body. Certain as a chestnut pony, you step away to the heart of the light. There's another uh, small poem uh, on a domestic theme, watching my daughter uh, outside. And she was very young, waiting for a school bus in the morning, and she's kind of jogging around, jigging around, uh, because it's quite cold. Uh, uh, um, Time has caught up with this poem, I suppose, if you could call it that, insofar as uh, she turned 13 uh, uh, the other day. So she's clearly a little earlier than that uh, at this stage. It's called, uh, um, um, originally enough, Daughter Waiting for School Bus. <laughs> she balances the frosty morning at the jagged edge of traffic. The winter gathers behind her hard grass and cracked branches. Knees bend, hips sway, toes tap to some tune of her own invention. Her body seems made of music. She is beating time all over. She takes from the air an air, making a song and dance of whatever passes, even the big trucks that shake us to our foundations. Sound as a bell, she stands there, more composed than anything I know. The rude world enters her little body. She returns it as music, dancing. And uh, slow down for the uh, poems, which uh, are a little chunkier, as I say, and always remind me somewhat of uh, gravestones uh, in their shape, <laughs> at the very least. And some of them are a little uh, epitaphal also. Uh, this is a poem made with apologies to anybody who's just dined on lobster. It's called, or is about to. It's called Incident. I used to write poems, uh, I mean, I've written poems about uh, dead animals, animals killed inadvertently on the road, or advertently, as the case may be, uh, uh, um, dead birds and so on. And uh, when I was uh, about to have lobster, 
uh, I recognize my own, as one has to, I suppose, implication in this particular, uh, 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 in this particular condition. Uh, so the elegy wasn't always appropriate. One was, one was part of the, uh, the killer uh, uh, mass. Anyway, it's called Incident. Mid-October, Massachusetts. We drive through the livid innards of a beast, dragon or salamander, whose home is fire. The hills are a witch's quilt of gold rust, flushed cinnamon, wine fever, hectic lemon. After dark, while water ruffles salted in the big pot, we four gather toward the wood fire, exchanging lazy sentences, waiting dinner. Sunk in the supermarket cardboard box, the four lobsters tip and stroke each other, cool and tentative, with rock-blue baton legs and delicate antennae, their breath a wet clicking, the undulant slow shift of their plated bodies like the doped drift of patience in the padded ward, eyes like squished berries out on stalks. It's all up with them, yet faintly in their close companioned air, they must smell the sea, some place to hide until all this blows over. When it's time, we turn the music up to nerve us to it, then take them one by one and drop in the salty royal and scald, then clamp the big lid back so not to see the spasms. Gripping the elegant fantail, I plunge mine in head first and feel before I can detach myself the flat slap of his jackknifed back, glimpse for an instant before I put the lid on it, the rigid backward bow bend of the whole body as the brain explodes and lidless eyes sear calcium white. We two are bound in silence till the lid planks back and music floods like a tide. Minutes later, the four of us are bending to the brittle pink intricate shells and drawing white sweet flesh with our fingers, sewing our shroud talk tight about us. Later, when I scrape the leaf-bright broken remains into the garbage can outside the house, that last knowing spasm eels up my arm again and off, like a flash among the rueful stars. Here's another uh, a cheerful poem about um, Halloween, and it's about the uh, uh, carved pumpkin, the pumpkin we make uh, jack-o'-lanterns of. It's called Totem. All souls over, the roast seeds eaten, I set on a back porch post our sculpted pumpkin under the weather, warm still for November. Night and day, it gapes in at us through the kitchen window, going soft in the head. Sleepwalker slow, a black rash of ants harrows this hollow globe, munching the peach-pale flesh, sucking its last seasoned juices dry. In a week, when the ants and humming flies are done, only a hard, remorseless light drills and tenants it through and through. Within, it turns mold black in patches, stays unchanged for days, while the weather takes it in its shifty arms, wide eye spaces shine, the disapproving mouth holes firm. Another week, a sad leap forward. Sunk on one side so an eye socket's almost shut, it is a monster of its former self. Human, it would have rotted beyond unhappiness and horror to some unspeakable solitary subject state, its nose no more than a vertical hole, the thin bridge of amber between nose and mouth in ruins. The other eye opens wider than ever in disbelief. 
It's all downhill from here. Knuckles of sun and peremptory steady fingers of frost strain at it night and day, cracking the rind, kneading the knotted fibres free. The crown with its topknot mockery of stalk caves in. The skull buckles. The whole head begins to drip tallowy, tear-sized drops. Surely the end is in sight. One more day topples it in on itself like ruined thatch, a pus-white drool spidering from the corner of the mouth, worming down the body post. All dignity to the winds, it bows its bogeyman face of dread to the inevitable. And now, November almost out, it is in the bright unseasonable sunshine a simmer of pulp, a slow bake, its amber shell speckled, chalk grey with lichen. Light strikes and strikes its its burst surfaces, it sags, stays at the end of its brief tether, helmet of dark circles, death call. Here is the last umbilical gasp, everybody's nightmare parent, a pitiless system rubbing our noses in it. But pity poor lanternhead with his lights out, glob by greasy glob going back where he came from, As each seed-shaped drop falls free, it catches and clutches for one split second the light. When the pumpkin lapses to our common ground at last, where a white swaddle of snow will fold it in no time from my sight, I try to take in the empty space it has left on top of the wooden post. It is that empty space. still in in that kind of season and perhaps to some degree in that kind of mood but not quite so uh, culinary Uh, a a poem called All Souls Morning in which I move between my place uh, where I live up in Poughkeepsie and uh, Dublin where I'm from All Souls Morning rain splatting wet which is November 1st right or (laughs) November 2nd uh, All Souls Morning Rain splatting wet leaves, citrine light, the cat scratching the sofa, the house dead quiet, but for the furnace thumping in the cellar. That man, my neighbor, out on Locust Road as he is each morning, no matter the weather, walking his dog, bent shoulders and heavy head, cherry leash dangling from a pale hand, his dog, the dark tan of oak leaves when they turn and hang and enter, the depths of winter. I see a huge patience in his stoop, in the ghostly cigarette limp between his lips, in the stiff tilt of his head, the treadle action of his passage, the orange surprise of a golf umbrella blossoming from his fist, the loll of the dog by his side as they return up locust, both eager to be in again from the cold, wet day that's breaking round them. I'm thinking how, bound to one another, they've been at this for years, when my father comes leaning as he always did up Clerval Road, not far from where he's buried, bent against the bitter wind that always tunnels it in winter. His black umbrella furled, our small black mongrel brandy, straining the leash towards home, where my mother fusses the tea together. Five o'clock and Dublin's dark already being November, fat raindrops scudding the wind and mixing in his lost thoughts as he hastens after his dog, home to the wife who, when he leaves her behind, will run aground with grief at being no one in the world. This is, I guess, the bottom line. Buttoning our habits to the chin, we set out 
walking fast with death. A blue jay's screech rustles the skeleton of our locust tree. The road out the window is empty again, and rain gives way to sky-bright weather, grey aquarium light making luminous the air, coating dark tar with mirror pools of periwinkle blue. A rising wind tides among surviving leaves, and a swallow flock of dead ones joyrides down Locust Road, cold no more, borne off. All night, you said, when we wakened warm by one another, I was seeing shapes widen round the room, hearing them whisper in the wall. This minute my hungry children come clattering to the kitchen for breakfast. The house quickens. And uh, just to change the uh, locale a little and take us where we might like to be as, uh, as fall descends on New York, uh, 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 to Sardinia. Uh, There's a poem called uh, um, Lizards in Sardinia. I miss our lizards. The one who watched us eat our lunch on the rocks, half of him sandstone brown, the other half neat rings of neon avocado. He moved his head in wary jerks like a small bird. On blinking, his stillness turned him stone. When he shifted whiptail, his whole length flowed like water. Elemental, his reptile eyes took in a world we couldn't see, pausing in the dragon roar of sunlight till his blood boiled again, then lighting out for shadows and an age of fragrance. That other one, who'd lost his tail and stumped about, still quick as a lizard, vanishing behind the eucalyptus trunk. Those two who scuttled circles, tail of one clamped fast in the other's mouth. Courtship, we hoped, as they dervished among the piebald, finger-slim eucalyptus leaves and rustled into infinity, a flash, an absence, minute leftovers with molten brains, escapees when their sky-high brothers bowed, cloud-scraping heads and bit the dust, leaving the wrecked armadas of their ribs for us to wander at. Or that plump one squatting beside me, edge of the steel and turquoise bay you rose from dripping light and smiling in my direction, unblemished emerald down half his length, the rest opaque and dull, we thought, until we saw the envelope of old skin he was shedding. Under it, jewel-bright, he blazed our breath away, like the one I dreamt when my father died, big as an iguana and the colour of grease-proof paper, till I saw him gleam and be a newborn beast of jade and flame who stood there mildly casting his old self off and shining. Those afternoons... After we made love, I lay along your back, lizard still, blood simmering, and saw your splayed palms flatten on the white sheet like a lizard's lovely hands in perfect silence. We stayed like that, listening as lizards listen to the wind whiffle the eucalyptus leaves against the window, our new world steadying around us, its weather settled. Thank you.
flatten it out so that it lies there on the page uh, like a corpse. And she said, um, did I make it better or did I beat it to death? And I ha when I was asked so directly, of course, I had to say that she beat it to death. And at that point, her face kind of changed and everything went limp. It seemed like her hair even went limp. And I thought that anybody who cares that much has half the battle won. Uh, and that she does. The, the other half, of course, is having talent. Uh, two things struck me about her writing while I was at Iowa. One was that the, the first story of hers that I encountered was about a, a young Jewish child who uh, is, in a very dramatic fashion, learns the rumor that the Jews are responsible for the crucifixion and how this affects her emotional and family life. And when you read a lot of stories by young writers, they're mostly about very, very small things. And I admire tremendously that this was not a small thing. Uh, and secondly, in all of Marjorie's work, there is the quality of a very steady, patient, and careful scrutiny of everything that passes before the eye of, eye of the observer, and a willingness to, willingness to gaze long and hard at what's there until it yields up all its secrets. And then, of course, the ability to say in fine language what she has found. Marjorie Sander. Can you hear me? Is it? Sit down. How's that? Is that all right? Uh, I want to thank Lynn for not only the introduction, but for setting me straight early on, despite my changing face and faint heart. Uh, this is called Still Life. Contrary to everything my mother has told me, I believe Tanta Rose was born in the Midwest on a brilliant afternoon when the sunlight probed every leaf on the big elm in their parents' front yard. She died on a day like that, in California, where sometimes the sunlight over the desert reaches the darkest parts of the ocean, and you can imagine that if you dared look, everything, all the way to the bottom, would be revealed at once. It's easy to forget about that kind of clarity, for in homage to Tante Rose, my mother closed the blinds in our guest bedroom, making it so utterly dark that when the ambulance men came to take Tante, I had to squint to see her tiny, childlike form float away from me and up into that violent exposure. It is with the same obstinacy about the dark that, when my mother tries to tell her sister's story, she winds up with only a fragment or two. Beginning or ending, she seems to bend over her words like a gypsy over cards she herself can barely see. Of course, I am not being fair. She was 12 years younger than Rose and raised by parents whose faces in photographs bear their own lost childhoods like the shock from a stove burn. And so the pictures containing my mother are like small, safe nets in which she is caught, a rosy, blonde, pampered child whose underwear and socks have been allowed for the day to lose their elastic. Later, of course, she would conquer all that, but this is who she was when her older sister escaped the lovely, neat house in West Lafayette. Escaped, says my mother, though not before tightly lacing the old-fashioned black boots her mother made her wear when all the other girls had long since begun to wear the slim, handsome pumps of the 30s. My mother remembers this. Rose, on a dark winter morning, tucking a nickel into the finger of one black glove, then bending to whisper in her ear, this is how working girls keep their car fare safe in the big city. And she was gone. Maybe this is why, in my mother's telling, it is always a dark winter morning in a northern city 
when Rose gets up and walks to the L, wearing black gloves and a black wool coat, her hair bobbed short in the fashion of the day, though heavy braids had suited her face better, so serious and frowning, like one of her mother's generation, eternally clutching a ticket for further passage. Rose has been lucky enough to find a job in the city, lucky to be able to write a letter home that says how beautifully everything has turned out, how sorry if I frightened you, money forthcoming. She feels her luck at those moments we are told are inconsequential, when she grips the tram pole with both black-gloved hands and searches her own eyes in the window as the car goes into a tunnel. On those rides, she takes herself in greedily, composing and recomposing the already sent letter in her mind, while behind it, a secret thought stands with its hands neatly folded, a passenger within the passenger. Now I am free to live and to suffer greatly, romantically, as my mother did not. But not yet. For the time being, she is content to rise each morning and take down her freedom in a series of little notes, the sputter of the radiator, the three-minute egg knocking against the inside of the saucepan in the perfectly square kitchenette. She steps out in the old-fashioned boots she is not quite ready to relinquish, to ride the L into the city where she is a medical stenographer. All day there are more little notes, little barriers she knows she could knock over in an instant if she so chose. Headphones, perfect posture, the small lap typewriter. Her mother would approve if she could see her here, and so Rose has the delicious self-consciousness of the runaway made good, still hiding, breathing in short gasps, locating the smallest, most obscure corners in terminals, rooming houses, cafes. Of these, her favorite is Sam's lunch counter, where Sam has come to reserve for her the back table and a chair that does not wobble. She is tea with lemon white toast at 10 o'clock and the daily special at noon, no matter what. For days on end, she brings with her the same enormous book, whose name Sam cannot see, only that it is a heavy book with a rough surface, a book that will not end easily or soon, and that will complicate and complicate until the ending does not matter. It is not so much what is in the book that thrills Rose as the bare physical fact of it lying before her in a strange place, a book from her mother's house, inscribed by someone to someone, that has managed to reappear in this city that is, for her, a dream wedged between two darknesses. She has coffee in the thick white mug Sam brings to her table. She admires the outfits of the other working girls. She eats her sandwich, turning each page of the book with an almost unbearable presence of mind, as if she is not only experiencing it, but is also an old woman looking back on her life, holding it beautifully immobile in her hands. It is in such a state that she falls in love for the first time. I'm expecting it to be Sam, for which my mother eyes me quizzically. Of course not, she says. He is a boy her own age, who works in another department, and sees her through the glass between their offices. Rose looks up through the glass, too, and sees the young, narrow face, the firm energy of the hands as he lifts parcels, makes notes on a chart. And faintly, too, in the glass, she sees her own reflection as she did in the windows of the L, the dark, unsmiling eyes that beg for a fate of cinematic proportions when everything in her experience has been fixed to run the other way. My picture of them before their marriage and the war is not of the two of them linking arms to walk in the snow to Sam's, but of Rose alone at the lunch counter, still reading the same big book and glancing up at the windows, where at any moment he might pass by and see her. She is always alone in my picture of her, always waiting for him to turn the corner and meet her in the terrible suddenness of that kind of love, a pointed flame of anticipation. Starting to see her, that is when, in this story, I no longer hear my mother's voice telling it, but see her, too, as she must have been then, eleven years old, 
lying on her bed in the white upstairs room of her parents' house, a dappled figure on the coverlet in the afternoon sun, wishing herself into her sister's life. She is slimmer now, and her mother has begun to braid her hair into two tight, thick plates, and she, too, has a pair of practical black shoes in the closet. Lying on that bed, the sound of her mother's voice is far enough beneath her that she can imagine herself in the city with Rose and her fiancé, riding the streetcar to the World's Fair, her own nickel tucked cool and silvery into the finger of one glove. She is a little dizzy, so both of them hold her hands and point things out to her, and at one moment the young man, without any warning at all, puts his hands about her waist and lifts her high into the air above the crowd. For a moment she floats effortlessly above the myriad heads, the chestnut, raven, auburn, all shining, each hair defined as a perfect living strand, and she closes her eyes against any change. Fighting something like gravity, she slows her own descent, finding herself at last on a white bed like her own, but wider, more brilliantly white, where the three of them rest, not separate at all, but sister, brother, sister. My mother is the flower girl at their wedding, and it having been only seven weeks since the courtship began, they are breathless still. My mother is, too, seeing not their faces, but the way their hands and lips can barely meet during the ceremony, as if the slightest brush of flesh is painful. The next day, the young man enlists and is gone to the Pacific. In a month, the family will learn that he is in an infirmary with a minor infection Rose will not name. He will be home soon. She must have met him at the station, but neither my mother nor I can imagine it, nor can we imagine him telling her that he has been cured It won't touch her. We see her alone, awakening before him in the early morning dark, stepping out of bed and out of the house before he stirs, going to Sam's for breakfast now as well as lunch. Now she bends closer to the book she has brought, and the dark print on the white page, the steam rising from her cup, all force themselves upon her to keep her from glancing up. They have made an arrangement that he should not be home in the evening when she arrives from work. He is out at a club with friends, home on leave. Then one night she comes home to find him sitting at the kitchen table. One shoulder is slumped, and there is a quizzical expression on his face, as if he was expecting a blow. He is 25 years old, and death leaves no mark, no bruise on his narrow face, only an expression of betrayal she cannot, will not, fathom. In the boxes of books, papers, and photographs pushed to one side of our guest bedroom, the biggest bundle seems placed there as a false clue, something to throw us off the track. There are too many photographs, all documenting the series of pleasure trips she took after the war. They are elaborately framed, hand-tinted, and Rose's cheeks are in a constant, delicate blush. She is always in a group of men and women all talking at once when the shutter clicks. In photograph after photograph, something is wrong. She is too close to center frame for my Tante Rose, too close until I notice the slight outward lean of her body, the only sign that her friends have dragged her into the light against her will. Caught like that, Tante Rose is at a loss. Her bewilderment sets itself in a new slant of the eyes, a small, stiff, foxy smile that fools the photographer, asking her to chat with a girlfriend on the Canadian train, to hold up binoculars and gasp at the great snowy shoulders above Lake Louise. It is not until a new person appears in the photographs that Rose remembers herself, that she lifts her face to the camera and lets her eyes open wide and dark with a child's grievous desire for experience. He is a big man in a fur coat in one of the Lake Louise pictures, 
a full-length fur coat and a fedora and dark eyes set in his sweet, sad, heavy face. On the back of the picture, the name Pincus is written in light brown ink, and it is easy to see him being introduced to her at a travel club meeting, swamping her small, dry hand in his, breathing his name to her in puffs of frosty air. Pincus Rosen chants her host, one of our most celebrated art historians. Pishtosh, says Pincus, and Rose lets her hand rest easily in the enormous warmth of his, not considering whether she will ever see him again, let alone marry him. He appears in more photographs, but never the summer ones. He is always in a fur coat or an overcoat, the fedora slanting down over his bear-like face, the brown eyes gleaming. There's an abundance to him that she might have at first mistaken for wealth, that of an entrepreneur who, taking off one pigskin glove, would sport a diamond ring on his little finger. Gradually, there appear photographs of the two of them alone, and one, finally, of the two of them on a ship's deck, the whole picture tilting with a larger motion we cannot see. Rose is leaning again, but this time toward Pincus, with a desire so slow and unknown even to her that it is imperceptible as anything more than the magnetism of a larger body for a smaller one. Pincus is inescapable. Pincus's father, brother, lover, a heavy, great man whose wintry breath is kind and whose own ending, ending sleeps, accepted on hidden cushions in his heart. After their elopement, Pincus's arm is always around Rose's shoulder. She is fragile, getting smaller, losing herself in his generosity as if it is a lullaby. At night, they look together at art books larger than the books Rose once carried to the lunch counter, self-portraits of Rembrandt, in whose glance you can read what you like, great success, great disappointment, in whose, back, in whose dark backgrounds there lies a mystery more rich to Rose than the sensual textures of velvet, the points of light on lace that Pincus lingers over. Pincus draws Rose closer, turning the page to a Venus all scallop-curved from breast to thigh, but she has somehow gone past him. She glances away, then leans toward the book with an impulsiveness. This one is better, she whispers, turning the page to Michelangelo's creation of Adam, in which, between the hand of God and the hand of man, there is a hairline fracture cracking the solid surface of the ceiling. She, is, she looks up at Pincus, laughing, laughing, and he bows his head, acknowledging defeat more fully than she can guess, not knowing that he is 20 years her senior and that something is quietly spreading in his body, a hairline fracture nobody can see. It must have been around that time that my mother met Pincus, at a moment when her life was in danger of holding its adolescent shape forever. She was 15, her hair bright and short on a delicate neck, her eyes green and on their way to foxy like roses, with a question perennially in them and perennially denied. She was just defiant enough to have thrown the practical black shoes in the ash can behind their house and purchased, trembling, a pair of apricot pumps, the slender strap curving around the ankle. Her fingers slipped every time she tried to buckle the strap, and looking down, ready to step out the door, she could not believe these were her feet. That was when the letter arrived inviting her to visit in the city, and when, after a fierce argument with her mother, she packed her lightest summer dresses and was gone. Why Rose put them together at the museum, my mother does not say, and purses her lips so that I cannot inquire further. It doesn't matter. Now I know who she was, 15 in her pale pumps and dress, gloves and a low hat, walking through the museum with the great Pincus, whose very overcoat breathes a kind of sleepy power over her, making her sense the faint heat of her skin in the palms of her hands under the perfect gloves. 
They move slowly through the rooms, Pincus's face moistening so that he must dab at it gently, though he will not take off the coat. There is something, however, she must see before they go, and they walk through rooms of portraits until they arrive before a painting, and he stops, wipes his forehead, and says, Now, there. How long does it take my mother to recognize her future self, to accept the nude's long, languorous thigh and curve of hip, the absolute nakedness of a throat when a single golden collar of jewels lies upon it? The man beside her is motionless, yet a knowledge that is not quite a threat moves between them and the picture like a current of air. How long does it take, and how does Pincus know when to step away from the girl and the painting and appraise her with a look that she knows in the instant before she blots it out is not lascivious at all, but a cool shaft of wisdom that is somehow, by accident or not, traveled to her through a pair of heavy, sensual lips. Don't let them stop you from becoming this, he says, and walks away. She does not immediately turn ash white and go down in a heap of pale apricot on the museum floor, nor does she decide immediately never to speak to him again. There is a moment of recognition before the rest when something gets through to her, before convention, their relations, her sister, her mother, flood her, and she responds in the only way she has been trained, to faint in a public place. The next morning, my mother will not speak to Rose or Pincus, even when Pincus himself questions her. Her face is stark white, her eyes a snapping green that will not face his for more than a second. She wears a sweater over her dress despite the summer heat. Fiercely, uselessly, she thinks of her mother, who will be downstairs dusting the staircase and the sideboard when she arrives, how she will surprise her, rushing toward her, begging her to enclose her in her house, her arms. Between Rose and Pincus, the incident is never discussed, perhaps because there was some secret, deep collusion between them in the awakening of my mother. In any case, it is soon forgotten, for within a month there is something new between them, having at last gained entrance and sitting now between them on the sofa, waiting to see what they will do with the knowledge of death. They do what they have always done in the evenings. They look at the great books, at the masters, and now, too, one other thing. Pincus is teaching Rose how to work with pastels. Not oils, not watercolor, but pastels. Chalky, delicate, her medium, he says, laughing. Rose outlines a pear, a nectarine, a bunch of purple grapes, and for Pincus, lover of light, she allows a silver-gray point to appear on the upper edge of each globe. She rubs a little with the side of her palm, and the salmon, the magenta, and the lavender remain on her wrist for days. She copies still lifes from the big book, and one day, when she is ready, she sketches Pincus. We do not know what season it is, but in it he is wearing his great winter coat and the fedora, and his eyes peer out at us with the ambiguous wisdom of a Rembrandt, who cannot decide whether he was ready for death or whether there is, in fact, something still left to say. If he is looking at Rose, he is trying to tell her something she will need to know after he is gone, that if it, if it is too late to grow up, it is not too late to hold still and let others gather around you, remember you, learn from you. After Pincus, there are no more photographs. There are visits to an apartment in a southern California town next to ours, an apartment in which there is a kitchenette, a small bedroom, and a stack of art books on the glass coffee table, where I will sit for hours tracing my finger over the hairline crack between the hand of God and the hand of man. And there will be a day, once a year, when my mother passes me into the hands of Tante Rose. It feels like conspiracy between the two of them, 
that day when my mother, with great ceremony, packs my overnight satchel and bends down to me, her creamy skin smelling of home, home, and whispers, later, you'll be glad I sent you. join us for a reception downstairs and I'll ask all the participants to come back here so we can be photographed for newspaper. Okay? Thank you. <laughs>